Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Fire, blood, questionable marriages. That's right, we are back in Westeros, and I've got my thoughts on the first two episodes of House of the Dragon right now. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle, here with my thoughts on the first couple episodes for the Game of Thrones spinoff slash prequel, House of the Dragon. I was on the road last week, so I didn't get a chance to weigh in on the first episode. We're going to cover the first couple weeks right now, and I've got to be honest, going into this, I had zero enthusiasm for this show, and it's basically because Game of Thrones, I don't think went out on the highest of notes. I'm not one of the people that thinks that the ending was the worst thing ever, but it certainly didn't leave me wanting more of Westeros. And so when I heard that they were doing this show, I was like, eh, okay. I have read The World of Ice and Fire, which is the book over here, uh, over my shoulder, which is like the big complete history of Westeros. I have not read Fire and Blood, which is the Targaryen book that was written that this show is based on. And I probably won't have read whatever other books George R. R. Martin has written or will write in order to not write the Song of Ice and Fire books that he should be writing. So I will say that I know the broad strokes of the Targaryen history and where we're going from here. I, I didn't memorize all the details of this book. I read it a few years ago and I actually have not gone back to refresh myself because I do want to be somewhat surprised by the direction of this show. So this video and the ones I'm going to be doing later on the season aren't based in Game of Thrones expert level knowledge. There's a lot of folks that do that and that's great. This is very much me being a fan of Game of Thrones, knowing enough about Westeros outside of the shows, having read the books, having read some of the stuff uh, like the histories of Westeros that I can talk a little bit outside of the margins of the show. But really this is my reaction to performances the characters, what we see on screen, and a little less about all of the knowledge that you can learn off screen. One final note, I am doing my best with the names on this show. It's hard for me to learn names anyway. There's so many new characters, and because everyone's a Targaryen, they're all like one syllable off, so there's like Rhaenys and Rhaenyra. I'm going to do my best with pronunciation and to keep the names straight, but I may slip up now and then. I just ask for a little bit of patience. Because this is so tied in closely to Game of Thrones, including a lot of the same locations, there's always going to be some comparisons between the two shows. Stylistically, I think this one looks a little more digital than Game of Thrones. It's a little brighter, which I think fits with the era that we're in in Westeros, but I think either because of COVID or probably just because of the abundance of digital technology that's available right now, you don't get quite as much of a real feel from this show. Although it doesn't look like they completely abandoned building big sets. A lot of them, I'm sure they still had the plans from, from the last series. I don't think that some of the VFX work is as polished as we've seen in the past, and it's probably because A, they're using visual effects a lot, and B, the visual effects industry is always overtaxed and always Always overburdened and always asked to deliver more than they should be on a much shorter timeline. But there are some scenes like the confrontation that happens at Dragonstone, for example, in the second episode of this season, where I miss the location shooting that we did for a lot of Game of Thrones, particularly in the first few seasons. 
and I hope that we maybe lean a little bit back that way as the series goes on. One actor on this show that I was not familiar with at all is Millie Alcock, who plays young Rhaenyra Targaryen. She's been in a lot of things, a lot of TV shows and stuff. I just haven't watched any of them, and she's great. She is her own character, and yet you can see out of her character where Daenerys Targaryen comes from many generations down the line. Because that is the order of things. When I'm queen, I will create a new order. I don't know what the split's going to be between Millie Alcock and Emma Darcy, who is going to play the older version of Rhaenyra at some point when we do this time jump, but there's really such a strong base level being laid for this character, and I hope that even after we do take the time jump that they're still able to involve Millie Alcock in the show as we go further down the road. We also have Patty Considine and Matt Smith as the dueling Targaryen brothers, and I think in lesser hands, this could have been the poor man Stannis and Robert Baratheon. But Matt Smith, first of all, gives Daemon Targaryen this petulance that I think differentiates this feud from the brotherly feuds that we've seen before. Something that social media tells me, and maybe it's because of Matt Smith's overall popularity, is that Damon seems to be generating a fan following for being very, for lack of a better word, messy about everything that he does. I can't really say that I feel the same, but knowing a bit of the history to come, it also means that the show's doing a pretty good job of making this a character that is definitely the antagonist at this point in the series, but that you don't hate right now. Patty Considine is not somebody who I would have thought of to play Viserys Targaryen. This is a character who is further proof that good men do not thrive in Westeros. It's great to see a Targaryen who's not completely mad or on a warpath. These are the Targaryens when they were in charge of Westeros. They weren't trying to get that throne back. And you can see Viserys trying to maintain that peace. His virtue, though, is his weakness. And he is a predecessor to men like Ned Stark who try their hardest to do the right thing, but in the process of that, lose the big picture. Viserys actually has more in common for me with the Starks than any other family that I've seen in the Game of Thrones franchise, partly because this last episode even, we saw him sort of following his heart and deciding to marry somebody that he wants to marry instead of the politically advantageous marriage. That's the exact same thing that doomed Rob Stark to his own death at the Red Wedding. And this is obviously something that is sowing the seeds of fire and blood. Reese Ifan says Otto Hightower is an interesting character. I don't really quite have him figured out yet because he seems to have Viserys' best interests at heart. And yet, like him sending his daughter to go see the king right after his wife died, there was definitely some political calculation going on there. So does Otto Hightower have his own interests at heart, the realm's interests, the king's interests, some combination of all three? I think there's some interesting ways to go with this character that I'm not really sure which direction we're headed. Let's get a little more specific to episode one, which premiered last week, which is called Heirs of the Dragon. And the show opened up in a flashback, even though I guess you could say the whole show is a flashback from the perspective of Game of Thrones, but to Harrenhal, which is such a great location. And its destruction at the fiery breath of dragons, which is something that happened in the initial Targaryen conquest of Westeros, is something that I remember from reading those Westeros history books, is something that I hope that they maybe find a place for in some flashback or something on this show, because it is such a chilling story, and the fact that this monument still stands to the destructive abilities of the Targaryens is a big part of the history of Westeros. 
we see the council that is set to decide that Viserys, who's the king's nephew, would be his heir and not his daughter, Rhaenys. And it's established that Westeros basically takes this as precedent that the Iron Throne will never pass directly to a woman. It will always go to a male heir. Eve Best, who plays Rhaenys, is such a great presence so far in these first couple of episodes. She is somebody who's ever-present, but always kind of pushed to the margins. And this is a great way, I think, to tell a story that's about the patriarchy without lampshading every 10 seconds that it's a story about the patriarchy, unless you are the producer doing the interviews for the after the episode things on HBO. They are very quick to remind you that this is a story about the patriarchy, but I don't think that you need that reminder. It's very natural in the story that you're telling here. Men would sooner put the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. Game of Thrones, of course, isn't real history, but it is a pretty close depiction of real historical systems. And I love the political fallout, especially after Rhaenyra is named the king's heir. And that discussion that Rhaenys and Rhaenyra have in the second episode about the fact that, well, sure, you're the heir right now, but you know you're probably going to get replaced, right? Because that's just how it works. They bent the knee to me and called me heir to the throne. Do you remind your father's men of that as you carry their cups? And the role of women in the royal family really took center stage from the very beginning of the show, including in this first episode where you have Viserys's wife, the queen, Emma, who's on the verge of giving birth. And she has that scene with Rhaenyra where she's saying, this is what women do in Westeros. If you're in the royal line of succession, you have kids. That's your job. We have royal wounds, you and I. The childbed is our battlefield. Later on, there's a scene where Emma is given a forced C-section, and it generated a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion, and the scene was horrific, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to watch it and not see the visceral body horror that's going on right there. And I also think, as is often the case, or was with Game of Thrones and seems to be the case here, that it was a tad gratuitous at times on the part of the show as far as how long they lingered and what they showed. Now, I do understand why some people found this scene to be objectionable, but I also think that this was another in a series of horrors that these shows have depicted, first Game of Thrones and now House of the Dragon. Viserys is shown to be very conflicted by this decision. He's grief-stricken, both in this episode and the second episode, by not just the loss of his male heir, but the loss of his wife, whom he genuinely loved. And when you go back and look at that scene, I, I watch parts of it again, the, the person that is really pushing for Viserys to make this decision and essentially sacrifice his wife in order to save his son is the maester. And the maesters in Game of Thrones generally have always been the ones that are the establishment. We must either act now or leave it with the gods and so this wasn't an action for me where i think that viserys came off as a villainous character i think he was presented with a horrific decision he made that decision now that doesn't make things better for emma and i think it underscores the point that was already made which is that especially when you look inside the royal line of succession women are really devalued for everything except giving birth to potential heirs. And this is going to be a huge part of this show. It already is. And then again, going forward, what little that I do know of the broad strokes, this is going to be a massive conflict as we go forward. So I don't think it was out of line for this to be something that the show depicts. And also keeping in mind that depiction doesn't always equal endorsement. 
Yes, I think it was a little bit gratuitous. And yes, I also think perhaps a more specific warning was warranted before this episode. But I also think that if you see that scene and those events in the context of the rest of the season, and I think the second episode already gave that sequence an even bigger context, then it really is stating what the show is largely going to be about. And really, I just wish that when we're watching shows, especially shows that are on week to week, that the reaction to everything isn't just immediate and sudden and swift and final. Like, this is bad because of this reason and this show's saying this. In the greater context, I think things often make sense, but social media was made for immediate reaction. So again, I'm not very surprised, but I do think it was a very disturbing scene, but that also spoke to the overarching theme and plot of this whole season. One very subtle thing that the show has done, and I think it's done it very well, is how it shows us Westeros at its peak. This is not a Westeros that's at war, nothing is burning, there are lots of dragons, King's Landing is intact, there's a functional royal family and a royal line. Knowing where everything is heading and the instability that's happening or going to happen both inside the Targaryen bloodline and outside the Targaryen bloodline, This Westeros almost feels kind of quaint, even though it is still home to so many of the horrors that we know from Game of Thrones. One impending conflict that we do have is the Triarchy, which is this alliance of the free cities who are coming across the sea and are now threatening to invade Westeros. They're at these islands called the Stepstones. I like this idea of the free cities beginning to encroach into Westeros because in Game of Thrones, they were always these far-off things. You would sail away, Arya would sail away, or you'd go over to Volantis or whatever. But I like this idea of a threat that's not the White Walkers. They're not trying to climb the wall they're not at the gates of king's landing and viserys has this choice to make do we go to war or do we not go to war and he sees his role as the king to be keeping this peace because that's what the targaryens came to do right and again it's this instinct to try to do the right thing that leads him down the wrong path and i like the idea that he is a very likable but very flawed king And he's maybe not going to fall to his excesses, but it's actually where he pulls back that's going to hurt him the most. There's an interesting thing they are setting up with Viserys, though, which is these infections that he's got. In the first episode, he had something on his back. Then he's got his finger that he cut on the throne, and he said he cut his back on the Iron Throne as well. And it looks like it's sort of decaying and rotting. The first thing that I thought last week when we saw the thing on his back was like, oh, are they trying to bring in grayscale to this? But now I'm not quite so sure because it seems like they're both tied to the throne. So is this something new? Is it something specific to the Iron Throne? Is it sort of a metaphor for... Or the corruptive nature of power. I don't really know, but they've shown it to us too many times now for it to be a nothing thing. I think that Damon could also have been a very one-note character. A lot of it is helped by Matt Smith's performance, but the other part of it is that he is also a victim to his own excesses, which then kind of turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. He's very petulant. He's always talking about being overlooked and not having enough status. You've only ever tried to send me away to the Vale, to the City Watch anywhere but by your side. And yet his constant whining and his lashing out by being overlooked causes him then to be overlooked as heir to the Iron Throne. And it's yet another in a series of characters that we've seen that are undone by flaws that they knew that they had, but still walked into anyway. 
This first episode also had an interesting twist in the overall mythology in that scene. It was really beautiful, very candlelit scene. You had the huge dragon skull of Valerian there, one of the last big great dragons of Valyria. And Viserys tells his daughter, tells Rhaenyra, right after he says, I'm going to make you my heir, that the first Targaryen to come in and conquer Westeros, Aegon I, did it because he'd had this dream, this vision, that there was this great winter coming from the north and that a Targaryen had to be sitting on the Iron Throne because only a Targaryen could protect Westeros from this eternal winter, which I think we're to assume is the invasion of the White Walkers. They bring in the fact that he called it a song of ice and fire. So this ties it back into the overall bigger mythology. And I thought it was very, well, I was very surprised actually, because number one, that is kind of a big, as I understand it, alteration to the known mythology of Westeros, especially in the TV era and also going back to the books. But also we know from the end of Game of Thrones, the show, that that prophecy really isn't true because a Targaryen on the Iron Throne isn't what prevented the White Walkers from taking over Westeros. And so the question now is, are they going to address how that prophecy isn't true? Or is there some weird, crazy thing going on where like George R. R. Martin drops two surprise books and finishes out the saga and it's a completely different ending. And he's like, yeah, House of the Dragon, that's a prequel to my books and not the show. We don't really know that yet, but I was not expecting a tie-in to the White Walkers and to the big story that we already saw in Game of thrones only because things didn't quite turn out like most people thought they would all of westeros must stand against it and if the world of men is to survive a targaryen must be seated on the iron throne a king or queen moving ahead to episode two which was the one that premiered last night it was called the rogue prince and we open with a new opening sequence as far as the visuals, but the really the exact same music that was used on Game of Thrones. And I was really surprised by this. I figured that there would be an opening credit sequence that was very reminiscent of Game of Thrones, but using the exact same music was not something I expected. And to be honest, I'm not really sure how I feel about it because that music is so specific to Game of Thrones. It would almost be like if Better Call Saul had come out and had used that kind of same bluesy guitar riff that Breaking Bad had used. It's a great piece of music, but it's so tied to that one show. So I'm going to have to sit through it a few more times to see if I can shake that off and just be like, oh, I guess this is the franchise's music at this point. But it actually threw me off, even though it's a banger. I love the Game of Thrones theme, just was not expecting to hear it exactly tied into this show. The Triarchy was introduced in the last episode. It takes a little bit bigger of a spotlight this episode and really how it ties into Corlys. He wants to go out, he wants to attack, his ships are being attacked, and he thinks it's a sign of weakness from the king to not go after Crab Feeder, who's the head of these forces from the Free Cities. And this is the sort of, again, political intrigue that I like. I like these small council scenes. I like this debate between the king and his advisors and who's right and who's wrong because the king isn't always right. Oftentimes the king is very, very wrong. I've sent envoys to Pentos and Volantis to see if we might find common cause. Ships and men are at the ready. And twice with Corliss in this episode, Viserys has a chance to make the decision that will keep Corliss on his side and he turns him down both times because of what he feels are his own personal convictions. And it goes back to that theme of making the decision that you think as a person is correct, but is the politically incorrect thing to do. 
Damon going to Dragonstone, seizing it and holding it with his loyal City Watch soldiers. That's, again, another thing. You have one brother that's on the throne. You have one brother at Dragonstone. This could have been Baratheon Brothers Light, but it wasn't, again, because of how these two characters are written and particularly how Matt Smith is playing Damon. You've come for the egg. Here it is. Are you mad? You've never survived this. Well, happily, neither would you. Damon's pretty much just a troll. He's a troll, but he doesn't understand what kind of game he's playing, or maybe he doesn't appreciate it. And we had this standoff with Otto Hightower and Damon almost coming to blows. And then we get Rhaenyra's entrance on her dragon, which is great. We see these two dragons interacting. And she comes in and just cuts through the BS because she knows how to talk to this guy. He's in her family. They're already very close. If you wish to be restored as heir, you'll need to kill me. So do it. And Rhaenyra really did show so many great leadership qualities in this episode. She defuses the Daemon situation. She appoints Kristen Cole to the Kingsguard because she wants somebody there that's done actual combat and understands that just because we're at peace now doesn't mean that the king or queen isn't going to need someone in the Kingsguard that actually knows what combat is. In a lot of aspects, she's a stronger ruler than her father, certainly more decisive. And this sets up interesting things down the road again because it seems very obvious that there's going to be some conflict about who's going to be the heir to the Iron Throne. She's making a pretty strong play, not just by blood, but by her actions. You went to Dragonstone. And retrieved the egg without bloodshed. A feat I'm not sure Sir Otto could have accomplished alone. Looping back to Viserys and his short-sighted decisions, you know you're watching a show that's set in Westeros when you have somebody who's faced with the option of marrying his teenage daughter's best friend, who's also a teenager, and marrying a 12-year-old, and you're rooting for him to marry the teenager. That's definitely a Westeros-set show for you. Viserys does seem to have some sort of connection with Alicent, as wrong as it is by any measure, and not marrying Lena Valerian is objectively not a bad thing, but it's going to cause all sorts of problems. Westeros really is just a nightmare world for just about everybody. This episode really focused in on not only the women of Westeros, especially when you get mixed up in the royal bloodlines being used for pawns, but sometimes even the rulers. We've seen rulers like Robert Baratheon who love the excesses of being the king, but here you have Viserys who really just wants to mourn for his dead wife, doesn't want to take another wife, who's being pressured to take one because you've got to keep the royal line going, but then that goes back to using the women of Westeros as pawns. I do fear what Rhaenyra might think. What does it matter, Your Grace? Her mother has passed. Her father must propagate the royal line. This is the wheel that Daenerys Targaryen so badly wanted to break. And you see shades of that in that scene between Rhaenys and Rhaenyra, which I thought was really good. Neither of them are really wrong in this scene. It's just sad to see these two characters discuss this as if they have a choice, knowing that their paths were laid out to them basically from the moment they were born based solely on their gender. Viserys' decision to marry Alicent is going to have a huge impact on Rhaenyra, and I loved Millie Alcock's performance. She played that scene so well, didn't say a word after the announcement was made. Of course, it prompts Corlys to have Damon come to his home at Driftmark, where he proposes an attack on the crab feeder in order to prove his worth and fight for his line of succession. But the one thing that I also loved about Damon in that scene and again, it's just a great piece of character work is that despite this feud that he has with his brother, he still pushes back 
when Corliss is trying to talk badly about the king. I will speak of my brother as I wish. You will not. This is setting up a lot of interesting things, and after the first episode, I was kind of like, ah, okay, we'll see how this goes. But this episode, in conjunction with the first one, really give me some early Game of Thrones vibes in the sense of pre-Red Wedding when it was small enough still that you were following a limited number of people. You could track all of the interpersonal connections between them and the show could really focus on these scenes between these characters. Later on in the show, as you got bigger and bigger and bigger, you had fewer of those scenes because you had to, so many different mouths to feed. But here the focus is so much on the Targaryens and I hope that the rest of the series, not just the season, but the series stays this way. I don't need to go up to the north and meet a young Night King or whatever whatever else stay where we are stay with the house of the dragon because i think this has the potential to be something really cool and really special particularly as we get into the even more complicated family dynamics at play so i do have to say that my enthusiasm for house of the dragon is building episode by episode we'll see if that momentum continues next week what did you think are you sold after two episodes are you just hanging around waiting to see maybe seeing what happens afterwards i can understand it i didn't want to watch any more game of thrones either after the original series wrapped up let me know down in the comments below and as always thank you so much for watching i'll be back very soon with more movie news reviews and more until then stay safe and i'll see you next time bye